If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, turn with me to John 14. I'll be reading through uh, verse 14, 1 through 14. Uh, if you need a Bible, there should be one underneath the chair in front of you. And we'll pray that the Lord opens our eyes to see wonderful things from his law, as the psalmist prayed in uh, Psalm 119. John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still, know, still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, do, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Thank you, Andrew. Let's pray together before we tackle all this. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for your authority that stood up in times of trouble and gave us hope and were a beacon of light. And uh that, that we could be drawn to. And in times of difficulty, in times of uncertainty, we know that you are there with us and you will not leave us and you will not abandon us. And we thank you that you are on the way with us. And so I pray today, as we gather to here as a congregation, there may, be, there may be many things going on in our lives. There's things going on in our culture, as Gibson has already prayed for troubling things lord we thank you for your promise that you are with us and the peace that you give us by your presence and i pray that we would experience that today in new kinds of ways i ask it in the name of jesus amen these i am statements caused reaction as we heard each week as uh, gibson and keith uh, uh, unraveled the different contexts in which we in which they were given and they were done in extremely vividing uh, riveting ways and with vividing pictures that Jesus chose from the culture that were so familiar to them and Jesus likened himself in pictorial kinds of ways that they knew the details of what that all meant and and it drew it drew offense in some particular cases among religious leaders who plotted and increased their zeal to resolve to kill Jesus. And in some cases, there were, we also have in the text that many believed, it convinced people, people who were searching, people who were struggling, and saw this image and saw the likeness of the image in so many ways, and they were able to get insights and special special connections with what they were looking for and it caused them to believe but for others 
it just caused them raised a rage because of the way that they, the, the religious uh, investment they had in their self-salvation, which I'll talk about later. Of all of the I am statements, commentators note and agree that this one, while the others, some of them were as well, but this one is the most offensive, and it's due to its e e uh, uh, it's uh, e um, uh, it it's, it's due to the fact that Jesus said, "It's only through me. It's only through me. I am the only way. No one comes to the Father through me." There is also a hint at the "I am the gate," and as the gate is the only way to enter the fold, and sheep know the voice of the shepherd only, and they will not follow the voice of a stranger. And in these figures of speech, there is this building, there is this building theme that Jesus is the, is the way, the only way. And this brings resentment. This statement, compared to all the others, is made in a small, intimate setting, which gives an outline that many of the others were made in the temple courts where people were gathering, and they were made in public settings where Jesus announced his I am. But this one is made in an exclusive inner setting with the disciples. And uh, let's, before we get into that, let, uh, Let's uh, just review John's purpose, again, which we talked about. John's purpose in writing the book is given in John 30. It's worth repeating. 30 verses uh, 30 to 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. This collection of this narrative that he has put together here in his gospel, this this is written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so there was the water to wine, there were various miracles that he did. These were the seven signs that John spreads throughout his narrative. There was uh, various healing accounts, there was the feeding of the 5,000, there was the walking on the water, and then finally, it was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That was the ultimate one. And all of those together were signs that John weaves in between his narrative that the combined purpose is that we would believe and that the people of that day and days after that, uh, as we read his word, would believe. This all has its root in Exodus 3. This has been mentioned in some of the previous sermons in the burning bush incident when God called Moses, uh, uh, who was perfectly content, somewhat a runaway after killing uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, Egyptians there in Egypt, and uh, he's out in the wilderness there, and, uh, and uh, he's, he's tending sheep. He's very content. He's been out there for a long time, and finally there's this burning bush incident, and he gets Moses' attention. God gives him an assignment and tells him what he should do. And he says, well, what, what if the people don't believe me? Who should, who should I tell him I've told you this? And uh, God says, tell him I am. I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. And so Jesus picks up on that I am, and he adds these pictorial descriptions that people can relate to in the culture and get a deeper understanding and a deeper connection as to who he is and what he has brought to them. Psalms 50 is another example where the I am's are described, and you may want to look at that this week as you do follow-up, but just on the first verse alone of that psalm, the, uh, this is a description of the I am, the mighty one. God, the Lord, speaks, and he summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. In other words, God here is described as an ultimate sovereign being of heaven and the universe who reaches down and manages the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, and God is sovereign. He is in charge of all that happens. And, uh, and, uh, and so today, 
we have here. I am the way. Being on the right way, the right road, is a critical thing. Knowing you're on the right road if you travel, and a lot of that uh, has been changed. I remember um, I went and looked, and sure enough, I had one of these. Young people probably had no idea what this is. But anyway, if you want, this happens to be a map of Puerto Rico, which is a place where uh, we vacationed a lot. And uh, anyway, uh, you would get one of these out to find out, and you had to have a certain amount of skill to use one of these. You had to know where you were on the map, and you had to know where you were going, and somewhat where the city was, and find a way. And, and this is also a problem with these, is folding them up and getting them back in a decent way. Uh, usually when you use it, you throw it in the seat next to you, and it's always in a cluttered mess and whatnot. But anyway, knowing where you're at, knowing how you're going, and am I on the right way? Those are all questions. Years ago, we used to race in our car. But now with GPS, we don't worry about that. Uh, my son, after I retired, uh, for a while I didn't have a whole lot to do, and my son Randy owns his business over here in Saturn, where the Ridgeline office used to be. And uh, anyway, he has a run up in North Jersey to a chain called Bottle King. They're wine, high-end wine shops, that, and there's a big circle, 10 shops up there. And so he asked me, he said, Dad, you want to make this run? About 200 cases that need to be delivered to these 10. And the only thing of North Jersey that I knew of is how to get to the airport in Newark and also to up the JFK. Other than that, I had no familiarity at all. And so the natural fun. Well, I, I don't know the way. I don't know North Jersey. I had no idea how to connect all of these places together. Oh, he said, simple. Just put the first address in your GPS, and she'll take you right there. And sure enough, and uh, so I went off. First stop is up in Mansfield, and uh, this very kind lady never talked nasty to me, always told me where to get on the road, let me know well in advance, never told me names if I went the wrong way or if something happened, and uh, always taught me to get back on the route if I stopped for a cup of coffee or whatever, but it, it, it just worked out. And then we went to the next one, and finally, at the end of the day, in pretty good time, I had them all done. I've done that about five different times. In fact, I'm doing it this coming Thursday again. But uh, there's a comfort in knowing, and I don't want to say her names lest I awaken all your phones, but she is just so kind and she's comforting to take along on a trip and to show me the way and reduces the sense of anxiety. Well, where do I go and where do we, what highway do I get, and what parkway, and what shortcut can I take to get to the next, all of that. She has it all mapped out, she knows. And there's a certain amount of comfort in that. But there's a warning, Proverbs 14, 12 says this, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. And so we're caught in that dilemma as well. There's a way that seems right. It seems right to us. It seems like we ought to do it. And so we have to deal with that situation going on. What, what is seeming right to me but going to lead me in the right way? And how do I choose the right way and the right direction that leads to life, which is what John promises here? And then there's another one in Matthew 7 where Jesus talks about that, picks up the theme that we talked about here the other week about the gate. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. So there is two kinds of gates and two kinds of ways with two kinds of destination. And there's also a description that many people are going down the wrong wide gate, wide way. Jesus said, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard. That's an interesting, yes, and ESV says, and the way is hard that leads to life, and few there are who find it. So we're getting some clues here 
as to what do we need to be looking for, what do we need to be searching for, but also what we're, we're needing to endure on the right way to get to the right destination. Jesus said, it's hard, it's difficult. Here's a note I want us to, as we move into this, it's not the way that Jesus is pointing out and showing to us mysterious, that, that it's some kind of a mysterious hidden way so that we can't find it, and it's some kind of a spiritual game of hide and seek that God has designed to confuse us and to make it hard for us. Rather, it's being on the way that is so con contrary for our self-seeking nature of being in control. See, that's the enemy within us that wants to be in control and we want to choose our own way and all of that. And that's what leads to destruction. And we're so prone to self-salvation schemes in a way of saving ourselves. And that's a hard truth. And somehow we have to overcome all of that. It's the way of truth. We have no idea how much falsehood we live with in and around us in our culture. A few weeks ago, I was uh, at Penn State's graduation. My oldest grandson graduated there in a class of 1,400 engineers. Nicola Palmer, I never knew her before or whatever, but she gave the graduation address. I do not, I, uh, graduation addresses are usually not, uh, not very uh, entertaining or whatever. You just kind of go there and put up with them. That's usually not why people go to graduations is they hear the address. But anyway, she, Nicola, is the, uh, is the uh, Senior Vice President of Verizon Wireless, and she uh, gave the commencement address, and she gave four core values admonishing the graduates of trying to uh, help them give vision for their personal lives. And I was sitting there, I had already had the assignment for this uh, sermon, and the first one was live, learn to live in truth. And in a secular setting, it was, it was she did an amazingly good job there, and encouraging the students to embrace truth early on in their lives, as many of them were ready to step into uh, vocational, uh, had jobs already, uh, were ready to step into their jobs and whatnot, and gave them the value of learning, and she gave some illustrations as, as in her career, and she had the privilege of having a, uh, a coach behind her and coaching her in the various steps uh, that she did, and she gave a story of how that the coach confronted her one time and said, you're nothing but a yes person. You just sit in boardrooms and you don't speak up and you don't share your truth personally, even though it's not that you're gonna lead the whole uh, the whole board meeting or whatever, but she said, what you have to say is important and learn to speak, it, speak into and have it a part of the group conversation anyway. It was, a, it was an interesting uh, uh, exchange there on, on truth, learning to live in truth. Secondly, the way of Jesus, the I am the way way, is counterculture to the culture in which we live in. It's culturally resistant. The culture is pushing back to those values that Jesus talked about. We get pushback from the culture, or we're taken, or on the other hand, we sometimes feel taken advantage of. And that grates us on inside personally. And I just went and picked a few of them out of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talked about, you have said that it's an eye for an eye, but I tell you, don't resist an evil person. Love your enemies, we're being told. And what, that's just one example. And uh, if uh, people are on a journey with you and they come and want to steal your coat, Give them your tunic uh, also, like give them your cloak also. If they ask you to go one mile, go with them too. Go with the second mile. All of these teachings of Jesus are contrary to what the culture is telling us and the way we've been shaped in all kinds of ways. And we need to learn to practice them in ways that are 
that they did witness. This is not so much a roadmap of where and how we go somewhere, like it is in my Puerto Rico map here, as much as it is to manage our way of life on our way. And I want you to get that. The teachings of Jesus about the way here is not so much a roadmap that we're all on the roadmap together as it is teaching a way of life on our way that God has allowed for us or chosen for us or the way that we have find our, ourselves journey. After the resurrection in very early years, before the organized church, people who followed Jesus and lived uh, lived the Jesus life were so marked and concentrated in the culture that they were actually called people of the way. That's what their name was before Christians. It was a way of living that so marked them and gave them distinction. I want you to hang on to that word. We're going to visit it later on. It gave them distinction in the culture in which they lived. And to people who were looking for meaning and purpose in life, in their life, that way, the way, the Jesus way, was attractive to them, and they found life in his name. And that's part of what caused the church to grow in such an explosive way in those early years. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. King James Version says, a peculiar people, a uniquely peculiar people, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. People of the way. Jesus is drawing a, on cultural experiences of Israel by using this phrase, I am. The religious leaders knew those words that were spoken to Moses back there on the, in the wilderness and connecting it to common things, figures of speech, that the people could visualize bread, light, the way, the gate, the good shepherd, the resurrection, the light, and then next week we'll hear about the vine, I am the vine. There is this theme in the text of not understanding. The disciples are there in the upper room and they're not understanding, and they're raising the question to each other, what does he mean? And then later in John 16, in fact, John 14, 15, 13, 14, 15, and 16, and even 17 are somewhat all connected together there. And I just uh, uh, looked through there this morning, even though it says at the end of John 14, the last words were that they were gonna leave, they were going to move on, they're still together as an intimate group there. And then in John 16, we hear this, now uh, the disciples are saying, now you're speaking clearly without figures of speech. In other words, apparently Jesus dropped that form of speaking. And now we can see and we know all things and we don't have any more questions. In other words, they're telling Jesus, we don't have any more questions. You drop the figures of speech and now we see it, but the reality, and acting like they got it, but no, in reality, they still didn't get it. One of the main things, as I said, I want to focus on here this morning is the passion of presence on the way. And over and over in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is this continuing assurance that God is giving through the voice of the prophets, this, this, this whole idea that I and we and you are not alone. People who work in emotional healthcare arts tell us that loneliness is one of, if not the deepest and most human, painful human emotions that we can experience, loneliness. And the reality is, that we can be with people and still be very, very alone. Over in the Bible, we're given the assurances that we are not alone and that God will is with us and he will never leave us or forsake us. And, 
and that to be alone and to feel alone causes anxiety and fear. And, and uh, as I said, we can be with people and still feel very, very alone. Throughout the Old Testament, there are constant statements of reassurance of presence. While they were in exile down in Babylon, that God had not forgotten them, even in that setting, he was with them. Still, still yet he was going to fulfill his promises to them as a people, and he kept reminding them of the 70 years that they were down there. I still have not forgotten you. You're still gonna be a light and a witness, and you're gonna go back to your homeland, and, uh, and uh, I'm gonna lead you back. And, and in a number of the uh, uh, Isaiah prophets, God himself is using that personal pronoun, I. I am going to do this for you, and I am going to do that for you. And the people are wondering, how can all this happen? And yet God is saying, I am going to, and what he's basically saying, I'm going to change circumstances, that circumstances, and put new rulers in place, and, and put new leaders in place, and maybe it's with a new generation, but anyway, I am still going to fill that promise that I made to Abraham back in chapter 12 of Genesis, it's still gonna happen. And looking back in history, it has. So let's go back here and look at the context and the setting here in chapter, and we'll start a little bit here in chapter 13. And, and, uh, and as I mentioned, through chapter 17, all of this is inner circle conversation. It's all just with the disciples and with them alone. It's very intimate, and it's done only in the company of the disciples. Inner truths about life and the way, so to speak. There's a lot to unload to, uh, uh, to them, and the anxiety is building within them. Uh, uh, and uh, in, in chapter 13, we have the upper room and the Passover that they were uh, observing, and uh, which was the Passover and the, what, uh, the beginning of the Last Supper there and uh, it, it begins with Jesus washing their feet. That alone was disrupting to them. He, their master, he was kind of in charge of the party and, and uh, or the uh, supper there. And uh, there was a task there that needed to be done. They basically sat at, at, they would sit at tables, they reclined at tables while he would just envision that people reclining 12 men, 13 men there reclining at tables, you're automatically in some kind of a way gonna get somebody's feet in front of you. And in a culture where they didn't wear shoes and had mud out in the trails and manure from donkeys and all of that, it just wasn't a pleasant odor. And before that last supper gets started and the Passover gets started, a task needed to be done. There was no servant in the house and so Jesus takes off his robe and puts and, and girds himself and, and washes their feet and teaches them in a whole new way of what it meant to be servants. And, 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 uh, and uh, that, that alone was dis disruptive to him. And then there's this talk uh, 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 around the table uh, that there was a betrayer sitting there. And uh, they start denying who that was and uh, they really didn't have an idea, and so the anxiety is building, and then there's the prediction of his trial coming up, and then there's also Jesus predicts Peter's trial. And then Judas leaves the Last Supper in the upper room, and Jesus, uh, Jesus begins his talk about leaving them in verse 33. Uh, 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 he says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me where I am going, you cannot come. And Simon Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. And Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And there Jesus predicts his uh, uh, betrayal. And uh, will you lay your life down for me? Jesus really puts him on the spot. And I tell you the truth. Jesus says, before the cock crows, they're in evening time, the cock crows at 6 a.m. in the morning at sunrise. He says, by that time, that short time, you're going to deny me three times. And so you can just imagine, 
the anxiety there that's building. Mark actually pushes that passage out further, and Mark says Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to deny, uh, uh, have to die with you, I will never disown you. All the others, they all said the same thing. Imagine the emotion that's going on there. Imagine emotionally what's going on with the group and each guy around the table there with Jesus. All of these guys had their own unique personalities and their way of interacting with each other. With each other, There's confusion, anxiety, blame, boasting, finger pointing, fear, trouble, uncertainty, maybe some anger and frustration. They're all, pre all of those human emotions are present there in the room. And so Jesus begins, as Andrew read here in chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus' words, do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't be troubled. Calm down, guys. Calm down. Trust God. Trust also in me. A point of application right here. There is probably no greater gift for people who are on the way than the fact that they can trust God and trust God and trust Jesus. Learning to live in God and in Jesus, trusting him in life circumstances and experiences and in the unfamiliarity of life. And today in a group like this, if we can sit and take the time to just to survey you all, there's people sitting here with trouble. There's people sitting here with uncertainty. Perhaps you've just gotten to hear the word, the C word for the first time in your life and whatever, uh, uh, the word cancer or something like that. And, and we have these kinds of experiences going on in our lives day after day. And one of the most comforting things that we can hear from Jesus are these words here. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be troubled. Don't have fear. Don't have anxiety. Learn to trust me. Put your trust in me. Put your trust in God. It's one of the greatest gifts that we can have. Do you live that way? When you have circumstances that come into your life, circumstances, experiences, situations that you did not plan for, they come. They will come. Can you put the emotional brakes on in your life and learn to trust God and to put your trust in Jesus? We live in a cursed world. Bad things happen. We've been going through that this week here and the stuff that's been going on in our culture. And just because we have come to Jesus and sight that we are on the way, we are not free from tragedy. But we have Jesus while going through all that. And the ultimate goal, the ultimate goal is the resurrection. We don't have time to go there, but that's another sermon. But that's the hope that we live with, and that's the hope that gets us through hour by hour, day by day, and week by week, no matter what has come into our lives. In John 16, 33, this just continues. I have told you these things, that in me you will have peace, Jesus says. Circle that in your Bible. It's just a small little phrase. In me, learn to live in Jesus. And in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And Jesus is referring to his resurrection, his life after death. He has overcome, and that is our hope. We are placing that, our hope, in him because we anticipate that for our lives also as we have placed our hope in him. In the middle of this, in John 16, 17, some of Jesus' disciples said to each other, and they're still raising these questions. What does he mean by saying, in a little while, you will see me no more, and then after a while, you will see me, Be and because I am going to the Father. There's confusion, there's anxiety, and a total lack of understanding. Later on in Luke 24, after the resurrection, after the resurrection, on the story of the road to Emmaus, it's one of my favorite stories, and after just witnessing his trial by the chief priests and the religious rulers, handed a death sentence of crucifixion, then hearing the report that his body was missing in the tomb, this is what the disciples said to one another as they were in that threesome walking on the road to Emmaus. 
we had hoped that he was the one that was going to deliver Israel. They said that. That's the hope that they were living in. They were deeply disappointed. They thought the day that Jesus was going to come and set them free from the control of the Romans. And that's what they had placed their hope on, even after the resurrection. And yet, there's a new reality that's being unfolded here. And so in the message to Jesus and his disciples, in this intimate setting, inside group through which John's, uh, was, through which we, through John's gospel, have the privilege of eavesdropping and finding our own comfort in times of fear and, uh, and anxiety, Jesus is saying, do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in me. Jesus is saying, I'm going, you're staying, later you're going to be coming with me. And then Thomas, the doubter, who we know, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And here we get the teaching of God, of the way to God, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the way to God through the Father. And then Philip, another one of the disciples said, with kind of an impatient request. Get to the point, Jesus. These are not quotes, these are uh, paraphrases. But he's saying, cut through all the red tape and, sh and just plain show us the Father. Just open the heavens up and let us see the Father. That's what, basically what he's saying there. And, uh, and, and that will be enough. And uh, Jesus in John 14 continues to unravel this relationship with Jesus' remarks almost with disappointment, where he says, I've been with you guys for all this time. Don't you know me? Don't you know me? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And he is developing this kind of this spider web of where they're all, where him and the Father have all tied together. And when we place our faith in Jesus, we get into, we get drawn into this trinitarian picture of god and the father and the holy spirit which is taught in the next passage after that but our faith in jesus brings us into the very circle of god the father god the son and god the holy spirit that i am in the father and the father is in me and our faith in jesus brings us right into this inner circle Verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be uh, with you forever, the spirit of truth. And he goes on to say, it's not recognized by the world. The world does not recognize. But you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth and over and over jesus is assuring them that he will not abandon them he will not uh, that he's leaving they cannot go with him he will not leave them as orphans but he will send them a counselor the spirit of truth who will guide them into all truth i'd like you to turn if you want to follow i'm just going to be here a, a few minutes but i want to take you to a story of the way and it's in Exodus 33. And uh, this is uh, an interesting, interesting passage that takes us into some of the detail of, of being on the way. And uh, Exodus 33, and just let me give you a context for this. Uh, this is right after the golden calf incident which really invoked the ire of God and invoked his holiness. A number of people had been killed there. It's about 3,000 people. And God's, I want to say this in the most respectful way, and yet the honest way, God's temperament here is just about ready to blow up and blow up the whole program. And we actually see Moses coming as a mediator and trying to calm God down lets God destroy the whole program right here. 
That's a very quick summary of a lot of verses here. But let me pick it up here in verse in verse in chapter 32, verse 30. And the next day Moses said to the people, You, you have committed a great sin. But I will go up to the Lord now and per, and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. In other words, Moses is saying to the people, perhaps I can calm God down and we can continue to go on in some kind of a way. And so Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves God, uh, gods of gold. And now please forgive their sin. But if not, blot me out of the book that you have written. Moses puts himself on the line here as a kind of a savior. If you can't save these people, then blot me out. I'm out of here. And it's almost a kind of savior that Moses is offering his own life up here. But I just want you to watch the dialogue, how this goes on here. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go and lead these people. He decides, get this program on the road. He says, now go and lead these people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. He's saying these words. Having an angel of God going before them is not exactly what Moses had heard back in the wilderness and God's continuous pledge to them. That wasn't, so let's just watch how that comes up here. Verse 33, and chapter 33, uh, God again says in verse two, I will send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, and, uh, and go on with that list there. Verse three, go up to the land of milk and honey and I will not go with you. But God is saying, I'm going to send an angel with you. When the people heard these words, down in verse 4, they, they began to mourn, and no one put on their ornaments, which is a symbolic of mourning and being in sackcloth and ashes. And, uh, and, and later on, uh, it, this just continues here, and uh, I'm, I want to pick it up now in verse 12 of uh, 33 there's a description there god now meets one-on-one -on -one with uh, uh, moses meets with god in the tent of meeting which and it goes on to explain a little bit about that but then let's pick up this conversation in, in verse 12 moses said to god to the lord you have been telling me lead these people but you have not let me know who you will send with me but then said i know you uh, you have said, I know you by name and have found favor with me, and if you are pleased with me, teach me your ways that I may know you and continue to find favor. And then, and then Moses puts this right to God and says, remember, this nation is your people. He's saying, remember, this whole project was yours right from the beginning. This wasn't my idea. This is your idea. And... Uh, uh, and it's kind of laying this whole thing. This is an incredible, intimate, direct conversation with Moses and God Almighty Sovereign, who has just experienced this tremendous disruption of his own personal holiness. This is incredibly intense here. So anyway, uh, God, believe it or not, backs down from this. In verse 14, the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now, you would think that Moses would be content with that. He's not, he keeps coming back and proving his point to God. Then Moses said to me, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you are with us? What else? He comes back again. What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth unless you are with us? You feel the passion there that he has. And there's our word, distinction, that I wanted you to hang on, uh, hang on to and whatnot. There's incredible 
passion here. And I bring this up to ask you the question is how much passion do you have in your connection with Jesus as you are on your way of life? And when situations come up, situations that you did not plan on, situations, accidents, sickness, relationship disruptions, all of those kinds of things come up and you know, and we see the, uh, how it disrupted the disciples there in the upper room, they disrupt us in all kinds of ways. Do we have a passion to put the brakes on and first nail down our relationship with Jesus who is on the pathway with us? That's the question of application that I want to bring here today in this sermon. What else? What else is going to distinguish me and your people from the world in the way we handle problems, in the way we handle difficulty in our life, day-to-day -day experiences? And again, in 17, I will do the very thing that you ask. God is backing down. He's the second person in this conversation here. He says, I'm, I'm going to do it, Moses. I'll, I'll do what you ask and whatnot. And then Moses does the same thing that Philip does in John 14. He says, now show me your glory, God. Just, just show me who you are. Let me totally see who you are. In the same way that Philip kind of impatiently just said, God, let's just cut through the stuff and just rent the heavens open and show. Anyway, just let me narrate this as it gets along. It's too detailed to read all this, but anyway, God says, well, you can't look at the scene. No man has looked on me and lived. And so he tells Moses, there's a little cleft in the rock over there. Why don't you get in there and hide, and I'll kind of do a Nike swirl, and you can kind of see my back end going out of here. And look, and that's exactly what happens here. And over in 34, we see here what, what Moses saw. And it says, and he passed in front of Moses, and he, God, passed in front of Moses. And this is what he saw. The Lord, the Lord, is compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. That's who God is, and that's who Moses saw from the cleft of the rock as God swooshed by him and just allowed him to get a glimpse of his back end going away. He also is a God of holiness, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children and, and their children of the sin of the fathers of the third and fourth generation. That's a picture of God's holiness which intertwines with his graciousness in a mysterious kind of unspeakable way, but that is the God who is on the journey with us. And when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life, and the Father is in me, and I am in the Father, and because of our faith in Jesus, we are brought together in that kind of partnership as we journey through life experiences together. I just have a closing couple comments I want to make here, uh, while this word is not used in the text of John 14, yet it is taught throughout the Bible in so many of these things. And I'm going to make it just in this statement, and the picture is, is, so, is in so many of the Old Testament stories, it's in the New Testament stories, it's taught in the New Testament. But the statement is this, the way to God is through suffering, period. And uh, through a comprehensive overlook of biblical stories through difficulty. And that's why Jesus said the way is hard. That way that is narrow, where the narrow, it's a hard way to go. It is through suffering. And it's the, but it's the way that we find life. If we can journey through our suffering 
and know that Jesus is with us and that he was the ultimate sufferer. See, he was the ultimate one that was alone. When he was on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is ultimate loneliness to be forsaken by the Father. And Jesus experienced that for us. And so while we may feel alone, we are never alone. Jesus experienced ultimate loneliness for us. And we can place our faith in him in our difficult circumstance and have the assurance that he is with us. I want to make a quote from Tim Keller I have appreciated. In the last two or three years, I've read his book through three times, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. I highly recommend this book. But there's one paragraph, one sentence I picked out of this book that I could put in here. One of the main teachings of the Bible is that almost no one grows into greatness or finds God without suffering or without pain coming into our lives like smelling salts to wake us up to all sorts of facts about life and our own hearts to which we are blind. That's the purpose and the big view of suffering and difficult experiences that are there. They are there for the purpose to wake us up like smelling salts, to draw us to God and to give us deeper insights into how to journey. And just because we have come to Jesus, that stuff doesn't just get wiped away. What we have is his presence with us. If you're here today and you're carrying a load of something in your life that is hard for you to carry and you feel alone at times and there is no place to go with that and you have moments and hours and days, perhaps weeks and months, when will this ever end? I want to give you the assurance today you are not alone. The experience may last a long time, but the assurance I want to give you is that Jesus is with you. And to continue to sharpen your faith and your connection with him, and it comes, becomes a reality in your life. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness and your grace. We give thanks for your presence and your words that you have constantly affirmed over and over through the prophets of old. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And no matter what we are going through, you are there, and you are there with us. Lord, I give you thanks, and I confess often that I forget that you have paid the ultimate price for loneliness and being separated from your heavenly Father in heaven, and you could not bear that pain, and you cried out in a way. I thank you, Lord, that you have not made me alone and abandoned. And I pray that here for all these folks who have gathered for worship today. I pray that our faith would be renewed and encouraged in you. I ask, I ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.